morning, saints. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as a great and glorious God who inexplicably loved us in such a way that you sent your Son to save us, to redeem us from sin and death, and to bring us back into your presence. In other words, we, we praise you that the gospel is true. We praise you, Father. We thank you that all of these words that we've just sung, that they are true, and we, we revel now that we have the opportunity to open your word that you have so graciously given to us to remind us, to teach us who you are, and to give us glimpses of gospel truth in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New and we pray, Lord, that as we, as we do that this morning in the book of Leviticus, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would have hearts to understand the things that we read, that we would have wills that desire eagerly to embrace the truth and to apply it to our lives. Of course, we need your help with all of these things, and we, we ask for it with, with great eagerness, and we do so with confidence because we know that this is what you desire for us. We do it also with confidence because Christ has earned for us the capacity to call you Father. So we pray these things in His name. Amen. So please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. This morning we'll be reading about and considering the installation of the priests in the book of Leviticus. And I wonder if we were to have a little game of Bible trivia this morning, how many of us would know the right answer to the following question? It's kind of a trick question. Who, who is the first priest in the Bible? If we had Moses sitting here on the front row as our judge, and one of us were to say, well, well it's Aaron, what, what, would, what would Moses say to that? He might give us some points for that one. Someone else might say, well, it was Melchizedek. He, he might give a few more points for that. But he would probably give the most points for someone who would have the audacity to say Adam was the first priest. Because Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, Moses used words in Genesis 1 and 2 that he intended to connect Genesis 1 and 2 to his writing about the tabernacle and the priesthood. And so verbs that he uses of Adam in the garden are the same verbs that he uses of the priesthood in Numbers and Leviticus. So when we read about Adam being told to keep and tend the garden, those are the same words used of the, of the, the priests, keeping, tending, guarding, working in the tabernacle. 
And words that he uses to describe the Garden of Eden are words used to describe the tabernacle. And the intention is for us to understand that the the first temple, the first sanctuary, a cosmic kind of sanctuary was the Garden of Eden where, where the first man served as the first priest. And everything that he did was worship. All of his work was worship. His life was worship. Obeying God was worship. It was like the garden was the first place of worship where man met with God and was in constant communion with God. So Adam was the first priest tending and keeping that sanctuary. But we find very quickly in, in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam, the first priest, bought the lie that freedom could be found in distancing oneself from that service to God. So Adam decided to throw off his priestly service in a sense, saying to himself, saying to God, saying to creation, I don't want to do things God's way. I don't want to be told what to do. I want to see what will happen if I forge my own path. And of course, that lie that freedom from God would mean freedom in its, in its truest sense. Freedom from God would mean happiness and fulfillment Actually, the opposite ended up being true. When when Adam separated himself from God, when Adam, in a sense, freed himself from God, what he found was not freedom, but rather slavery. And as Adam used his mind to his own end, and his hands to his own end, and his speech to his own end, his life to his own end, what he found was only misery and slavery to sin. And humans today are no different. Man desires... All men desire personal autonomy from God. I want to do things my own way. And we tend to think of freedom as being able to do whatever I want. Of course, the Bible teaches through pictures and through statements that freedom is not doing whatever I want. Doing whatever I want with my body, my mind, my speech, my life. That only leads me into misery and slavery. Freedom is actually found in being brought back into the sanctuary of God and serving Him. And so the passage that we're about to read, Leviticus chapter 8, pictures God installing man back in the sanctuary. God is bringing man back. He's cleansing and redeeming him from his rebellion. And He's sanctifying him for holy work once again. Pictures man setting man apart, God setting man apart once again for himself. And so this this passage pictures man reversing the fall, picturing something that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So I would ask you to stand with me as we read Leviticus chapter 8. I would invite you to watch as God reinstalls the priesthood. And as he's reinstalling the priesthood, he is forecasting something that is going to be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Leviticus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, 
and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all of the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and he killed it and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar and he cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his, and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons. And Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumb, thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these on the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and on his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron in his garments and his son and his son's garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, 
boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are are complete, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. You may be seated. So, we've seen in recent weeks that God outlined offerings, both from the people's perspective in verses 1 through 5, and then last week we saw those same offerings outlined from the priest's perspective. But as of chapter 8, there were no priests fit to serve in the capacity of offering those offerings. Why not? Why are there no Fit priests. Well, there are some concepts that we really need to understand in order to make sense of some of the coming sections of Leviticus, including what we just read. It hasn't been absolutely crucial until now, but now we need to to look at all of these things. So I'm putting some of these concepts under the umbrella of what we might consider the uncleanness-holiness continuum. That's how they're labeled in your notes. The uncleanness-holiness continuum. Continuum. Leviticus 10.10 reads this way. Leviticus 10.10 reads this way. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. The holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. All things, all things on this planet, according to Leviticus, can be divided into holy and common. Now, we tend to think of holiness primarily in moral terms. But at its core, when we really take a close look at the Scriptures, holiness pertains to being set apart. When that word is used of God, holiness means that He is set apart from His creation. He's other than His creation. When that word is applied to humans or to things, holiness means being removed from common use and set apart exclusively for God's use. Now, that word holy and holiness, it necessarily takes on a moral connotation because a major way that God is set apart from His fallen creation is in terms of His moral perfection. And in order for persons or things to be set apart from common use, unto God's exclusive use, they must be set apart morally. They can't be compromised by the stain of sin. So there is a moral component. But the main idea of holiness is set-apartness. Exclusivity unto God. So there are holy things, and then there are common things. And in this realm of commonness, there are, there are two kinds of common things. There are clean things and unclean things. 
And we'll find as we move along in Leviticus that the default state of, of, of people in Israel is clean. If you become unclean, something has to be done in order for you to even be around everyone else. Even to be in the camp, you have to be clean. And so, holy things profaned by sin become common. That's, that's one of the, the, the notes in your, in your outline. Holy things profaned by sin become common. So we'll see that particular verb, profaned. We're going to see that verb coming up in Leviticus in coming chapters. Profaned is what happens when a holy thing is affected by sin. Clean things, so now we're in that realm of commonness. Clean things polluted or defiled by sin become unclean. Clean things polluted or defiled by sin become unclean. So among common things, something that's clean can be made unclean when it, when it is touched by sin or disease. And so disease in Leviticus is going to be, is going to be symbolic of, of sin. We'll see this in cases of leprous diseases, bodily discharges, other things in chapters 11 and following. So holy things profaned by sin can be knocked down to the level of commonness. And within that level of commonness, clean things defiled by sin and disease get knocked down to the level of uncleanness. Now, the unclean cannot come into contact, can't come anywhere near the holy. And remember, the whole problem that man has is we cannot flourish outside of the presence of God who is holy. So we who are sinners, unclean sinners... How do we ever enjoy the presence of God? The unclean, the unclean can't even hang around with the clean inside the camp of Israel. So, so what do you do? Well, God has, has devised ways for the unclean to become clean and for the clean to become holy. Unclean things cleansed by washing and blood sacrifice become clean. So those who have been defiled by sin and are outside the camp of Israel, we'll see pictures of this, coming up in Leviticus, by washing and blood sacrifice, they can become clean. They can come into the camp. In other words, they they get closer to the presence of God. They can come into the people of God and they're closer to God's presence. What about clean things? People who are in the camp, can they get closer to God? Can they actually become holy? Yes, they can. Clean things purified by blood sacrifice become holy. And so unclean things, all the way on the the, the far end of the spectrum, those who can't even be in the camp, can become holy, can be brought all the way into God's presence through blood sacrifice. Now, as we read a few moments ago, you probably noticed that repeated phrase, just as Yahweh commanded. And what we were seeing as we read read through chapter 8 is we were seeing that progression from unclean to holy among the priests, okay? Just as Yahweh commanded Moses. Well, when did Yahweh make the command for Moses to do all of these things, to consecrate or to make holy the priests? When did God give those instructions? If you're taking notes, you might write down Exodus 29. And I would encourage you to read that chapter on your own time. In Exodus 29, God gives all the the instructions that we just read about Moses following to the T. 
And in Exodus 29, God repeatedly mentions Aaron as the intended high priest. Aaron is going to be sanctified, that is, he's going to be set apart as holy for this glorious work of facilitating the worship of the people. So God gives instructions for the ordination of Aaron and his sons in Exodus 29. Then in Leviticus 8, those instructions are fulfilled. Now, in our Bible reading plans, a lot of times these chapters are separated by, by days, if not weeks. And if we get behind, maybe months, right? We kind of miss the context of these things going together. Is there any bump in the road between those chapters in the storyline? There's a huge bump in the road. Turn turn with me to Exodus 32. Huge bump in the road in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, we, we read a story that we're all familiar with. We may not recognize it just by hearing Exodus 32, but when I begin reading, it'll, it'll, it'll ring a bell very quickly. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now remember, what is it that Moses is doing up on the mountain? Well, Moses is receiving the law, including these instructions in chapter 29, for how to ordain Aaron to the priesthood. Put another way, He's receiving the terms of the covenant with Yahweh that all of the people eagerly said yes to back in Exodus 19. So they were were gung-ho about the covenant with Yahweh just a few days prior to what we're about to read. Moses has gone a long time. So the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So You see what's happened in the context here. Aaron, chosen by God to be the high priest, the chief among those who would who would facilitate worship of Yahweh, exclusive worship, because they've all said, yes, we want to be in a monogamous relationship with Yahweh. Aaron's chosen to be the chief among those facilitating that that worship. He has become the chief facilitator of false worship. False worship of a God that he created with his own hands. And he, with his own voice, made a call to worship of that false god. Interesting, the the word translated fashioned there in verse 4, that is the same word used of of the word that's used to describe God creating man in Genesis 2. Aaron created this this god in, in, in Exodus 32. Aaron has given over his mind, his hands, his speech to leading the people in false worship. 
And note, note the offerings made. Did, did, did those offerings ring a bell? Having just come through these first chapters of, of Leviticus, remember the burnt offering is what we've tended to refer to as the ascension offering to remind us what it means. An ascension offering says, I belong to you and with you. And the peace offering says, I rejoice because I have peace and fellowship with you through your provision. How blasphemous to offer those offerings to a God created by human hands when Yahweh created these people and provided for them. And Aaron is at the helm of this idolatrous ship. Verse 25, scan down to verse 25, notes that, that Moses saw that the people had broken loose. That is, they, they were out of control in their idolatry. And the text explains, for Aaron had let them break loose. See, the, Moses, in writing this for us, he lays the whole thing at Aaron's feet. And, and, and if we were to continue reading, we don't have time, we would find great judgment from God on the camp. 3,000 people are killed. Jump down to Exodus 32.30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, did Moses make atonement? If so, when did that happen? I would argue that we, what we read in Leviticus 8... And what we will read in Leviticus 9, Lord willing, next week, is the atonement that Moses seeks to make in Exodus 32. Now, we might think, based upon what happened in Exodus 32, well, maybe, maybe God's going to go forward with these, with these plans that He outlined in, in Exodus 29 for the priesthood and the tabernacle. Maybe He's going to go forward with all of those plans. But Aaron is out. I mean, Aaron has to be out. He has to be disqualified from the position that God had planned for him because what could be a bigger infraction than the intended high priest of Yahweh serving as the high priest of false worship? I mean, he used every one of his faculties to lead the people into idolatry. And, and, and this great plague was poured out on the people. 3,000 people were killed. Well, that brings us to the main point of Leviticus chapter 8, which is that God sanctifies the unclean for holy service. God sanctifies the unclean for holy service. This, this is one of the reasons that I'm a huge fan of reading the Bible very quickly. We need to do it at, at least periodically. Read the Bible very quickly because if we don't, we lose this kind of context. Because you can get to Leviticus 8 and you can forget all about what happened in, in Exodus 32 and Exodus 29. We, we can forget even who Aaron is. That, that Aaron is actually standing before God. This is the guy who, who just led everybody into false worship. And that's an important context for Leviticus chapter 8. Now, there are seven sections in Leviticus 8, each one concluding with the words, just as Yahweh commanded Moses. Intended to point our minds back to Exodus 29. That repeated phrase signals not only the meticulous obedience of Moses, but also that the sin of Exodus 32 did not change the plan. Indeed, the, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all of it is designed specifically 
to make a way for sinners to be sanctified unto holy service. In other words, all of this is about bringing Adam back into the garden. All of it is about bringing Aaron back into the sanctuary. And so Aaron and his sons are brought section by section in this passage into a state of consecration as priests. And so you can see where this is going for us, right? We've committed just, just wretched, horrible sins. Disqualified from the life of God, right? You see where this is going. Now, one thing to note in this chapter is that in, in this situation, Moses is serving as the priest and Aaron and his sons are the worshipers, okay? So we'll just scan through this one section at a time very quickly. Verses 1 through 4, God commands Moses to gather the people, the priests, and all the needed supplies. Verse 4, Moses did just as Yahweh commanded him. Verses 5 through 9, Moses washes Aaron and his sons. And we'll see later in Leviticus that washing is is associated with the unclean becoming clean. And so Moses then dresses Aaron in in his priestly vestments. You can read more about about that in Exodus 28. These priestly vestments and what what, what they're all about. All of that was done, verse 9, as Yahweh commanded Moses. We move move on to verses 10 through 13. Moses anointed with oil the tabernacle and and the altar, the basin, and all of the utensils of, of, of worship. And he poured oil on the head of Aaron to consecrate all of these things. And consecration, that word consecrate is from the same root word as holy. It's, it's the verb form, but it's to make holy, to set apart for holy use. And so with this oil being poured on all of these things, Moses, at God's behest, is setting apart all of this stuff for God's holy use. They're removed now from common use. They're not their own thing. They're God's things. Moses also then clothes Aaron's sons with their priestly vestments. And all of this, verse 13, as God commanded Moses. Verses 14 through 17, most acting again as priest, he offers a bull as a sin offering to purify the altar. Verse 17, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Moving down to verses 18 through 21, Moses again, acting as priest, he offers the first ascension offering, the first ever sanctioned ascension offering among the people of God, Aaron and his sons. They press their hands on the head of that bull. We talked about this back when we were in chapter 1. They're identifying with that animal. This animal represents us. And so when, when Moses then offers that whole thing up in smoke, the priests are saying, We belong to you, Yahweh, and we belong with you. Verse 21, just as Yahweh commanded Moses. So then at this point, what what, what has happened? The priest's sin has been covered by a blood offering. And by a blood offering, they have expressed consecration unto him. They have, have said to him, we are yours. We are not ours. We are yours. We belong to you. We belong with you. Now, moving down to verses 22 through 29. Moses offers an ordination offering. And and this is like a variation of of what we would call a peace offering. And and what's going to happen is that Moses, acting as a priest, and the priests acting as the worshipers, they are going to enjoy a fellowship meal with God. that's, That's what's pictured 
Verse 29, just as Yahweh commanded Moses. And now the final section, verses 30 through 36. Moses sprinkles now the fully arrayed priesthood with blood and oil and instructs them to eat the ordination meal inside the entrance of the tent of meeting and not to leave for seven days so that you do not die. Now, does that, does that ring a bell? As we're thinking about what, how we began this morning, thinking about Adam in the garden, and God said to Adam in the garden, don't do something so that you don't die, remember? Don't eat of that tree so that you don't die. Now God says to these priests, stay in this place and eat this stuff so that you don't die. This necessity to stay inside the entrance of the tent of meeting, this life or death issue, it underscores the totality then of their consecration to the Lord. It's not just their time that belongs to the, to the Lord. And it, it isn't just their energy, not just these holy clothes that they're wear, wearing, but their lives, everything that they are, belong to Him. Now think with me again back to the Exodus. Not just the book, but the event. When, when God killed every firstborn throughout Egypt, you remember this? God killed every firstborn throughout Egypt. He spared every firstborn among the people of Israel. And for that reason, if you're, if you're taking notes, you might write down Numbers 3.13. For that reason, the Lord says this in Numbers 3.13. For all the firstborn are mine... On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So, so using that consecration language, what the Lord is saying is, when I saved your life on that night, I sanctified you, consecrated you. I marked you out as holy for me. You belong to me. You are for my use. You firstborns, okay? Now, what the Lord actually did is to take one whole tribe of the people of Israel, the Levites, in lieu of every firstborn in Israel. And that's why the verse before in Numbers 3, Numbers 3.12 reads this way, Behold, I have taken the Levites among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn. And so what we find then is that by sparing the firstborn in Egypt, the Levites became gods, the priests, the priestly class, they became gods to serve at his tabernacle. And, and what that means is the Levites, the priests, they don't belong to them. As noted last week, this was a glorious calling, standing in holy places, touching holy things, eating holy food offered to God. They don't belong to them, but they belong to God. And this thing here of uh, you don't, don't leave for seven days so that you don't die underscores the holiness of their office, the extent to which they have been set apart unto God. And in echoing Genesis chapter 2, it reminds us, look, this is where man belongs. And this, this, is, this is the key to your flourishing. Fellowship with God in service to Him. You belong to me. Verse 35 has that similar refrain, very close to it, for I have been commanded, verse, 32, verse 36, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So, 
in, in the context, what, what do we have then? And, and by context, I don't mean just of Leviticus, I mean, but of, of, of the Exodus and all of this stuff. What do we have? We have this former chief idolater, Aaron, and his sons. They are now standing in the entrance of the tent of meeting, no longer unclean, and, and not just clean. They haven't just moved from unclean to clean, but they are holy. And they are preparing to serve as the chief worshipers of Yahweh and facilitators of the worship of others. And, and the picture throughout the passage here in Leviticus 8 is that of, with, with, with each little section, as, as Moses follows the instructions of Yahweh, applying oil to the right places at the right time, washing the priests, clothing them, offering sacrifices to atone for their sin, expressing their consecration, their peace, their ordination. The unclean become the formerly unclean and now holy. The former idolaters are now priests of the Most High God. The former creator of a golden calf becomes the high priest of Yahweh. So so all of this, all of this can be can be characterized with with one word, and that that word is grace. Grace is depicted in Leviticus chapter 8. And that that brand of grace is such good news because Aaron is not alone, is he? We we all have a long history of manufacturing and worshiping idols. We all have a long history of saying, actually don't want to do things God's way. I want to do things my way. I, I, I want to do what I want with my mind. I want to do what I want with my body. I want to do what I want with my speech. And finding then ourselves in further misery and not freedom. We've, we, we've all done that. We've all joined Aaron in those things. And so the grace depicted in Leviticus 8. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing that that grace depicted in Leviticus chapter 8 is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the New Testament authors, they read passages like Leviticus chapter 8 and they see them all as pointing forward to Jesus Christ and completely fulfilled in Him. And so we find them then using the language of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 8 in particular, using that language to describe things that Jesus has done for us in taking us from being rebellious idolaters and bringing us into the priestly class of the New Testament church. And so, with our final section here, we have two, two sub-points under our final point. As New Testament priests, we are qualified by the single sacrifice of our great high priest. We are qualified by the single sacrifice of our great high priest. So as we noted here in Leviticus 8, Moses served as the priest, qualifying Aaron and his sons. Who is the priest who qualifies us for service? I already said it. Say it again. It's Jesus. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 4. This is Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. Some of you may have this memorized. You've at least heard it read so many times that you could probably say it by heart. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus Christ is our great high priest, tempted in every way as we are. We might, we might also add, tempted in every way as Aaron was, yet without sin. And so he's able to usher us in, and when we are tempted, he is able to come to our aid. We're able to approach that throne of grace with great confidence, knowing, man, when we need help, He can give it. There are many parallels between what Moses did to qualify Aaron in Leviticus chapter 8 and what Jesus does to qualify us. I'm going to give you a few of these, just a few. We don't have time to exhaust the thing, but let me give you just a few. So one is that Moses washed Aaron and his sons, washed them and sprinkled them with blood. So also Jesus. Levitic, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, 21 and 22. Hebrews 10, 21 and 22. Talking about Jesus' rights. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Where do you think the author of Hebrews got that language? Sprinkled clean, bodies washed. He got that from Leviticus 8. He's talking about us now, not a Levitical priesthood. And, and we are sprinkled with, not with the blood of a bull, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. Washed, pure. That kind of language, we find it also in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. Similar language in Titus 3, 5. Titus 3, 5. And similar language in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. We've been washed with pure water, sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Another example of a parallel. Moses clothed them, clothed them in clean, pure, holy vestments for their service. So also Jesus. Galatians 3.7. Galatians 3.7 reads, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have, you've put on Christ. Now that word for put on is the Greek word for getting dressed. You have put on Jesus. You've, you've gotten dressed in Him. Jesus Christ, by His perfect obedience to the Father, earned an impeccable record of righteousness before God. And so when we trust in Jesus, when we, we are baptized in Him. The Bible uses that word. It means immersed. We're, we're immersed in Him in a sense, such that before God, we wear His record, not ours. Did you hear that? We wear His record, not ours. Now, that's what I call good news. That before the Father, I don't wear all the things that I've done. I wear all the things that Jesus has done perfectly in obedience before the, before the Father because I was baptized into Christ and I have been clothed in Christ. Another parallel. Moses offered a sin offering for the, for the atonement of the priest's sins, so also Jesus for us. To atone means to satisfy wrath. To atone means to satisfy wrath. 
And so we, have, we read in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And Christ sitting down at the right hand of God, what that signals is, my work is done here. One sacrifice of the blood of Christ satisfied the wrath of God for all time. Jesus Christ on the cross was that sin offering atoning for our sin. Another parallel. Moses offered offerings expressing consecration, fellowship, and special service to God. All those other offerings that he, that he offered. So also Jesus did those things for us. And we can multiply references to that effect. Let me just give you a few references for the sake of time. Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1. Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10. 1 Corinthians 1.9, 1 Corinthians 1.9, 1 John 1.3, 1 John 1.3, and 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 2.9. One more parallel. Moses anointed them with oil. He anointed them with oil. So also Christ. Now, commentators frequently associate the anointing with oil, with the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And Paul mentions the sealing of the Holy Spirit twice in one book, in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.13 reads this way, In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The other reference to the sealing of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians is in 4.30. Now, what does that mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? To be sealed... In this ancient culture, simply means to put a mark on someone, a mark of ownership. A mark of ownership. And remember, that's what Moses was doing as he was consecrating the temple and the utensils and the priests with oil. He was setting them apart for God's use. And so as Christ is, is, is putting His Holy Spirit inside of us, He's saying, look, you're mine. You're mine, and a mark of that is that my spirit lives inside of you. So, with the anointing oil of Leviticus 8, the priests there marked out to belong to the Lord. When we trust in Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that mark of ownership. We belong to Him. Now, what, what effect should, should this change in status before God this being marked out as holy, wearing the righteousness of Christ, what, what effect should that have on the believing? And the way that we see ourselves, the, the, the way that we are determined to, to use ourselves, our faculties, well, knowing the truth, which is that autonomy from God has led mankind to misery, and that it required the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of the Holy One of God, to bring us back to the sanctuary, knowing all of that, what should then be our desire? Our, our desire should not only to have a change in status, but to give ourselves completely to that holy service, that set-apartness. Said another way, we should give ourselves to this calling of a zealous pursuit of personal holiness. We are called to 
a zealous pursuit of personal holiness. Connected in the New Testament to all of this teaching on Christ's work, qualifying us to the priesthood, justifying us before God, there is this consistent teaching that we are called to the zealous pursuit of personal holiness. Now, here, here again, as, as we continue on and, and, and move toward a close this morning, I, I want us to focus on that foundational meaning of holiness, which is set-apartness, okay? It's impossible really to separate that idea from its moral connotation, so we can't help but think about our set-apartness in terms of what it means for our conduct and character. So that's going to come out as I continue. But I really want us to think about this being set apart for God's use. That we belong to Him. We're removed from common use. Okay, So consider with me three components of our personhood that culturally we tend to think of as our personal domain. That we want to think of as, no, this is mine. This is not anybody's. This is, this is not even God's. But which the New Testament explicitly says, no, this is consecrated unto God. This is holy unto Him. Three components of our personhood. First of all, our culture is fond of saying things like, my body, my, my body, my choice particularly with reference to one issue, but it's the spirit of the age on a host of issues. This can, this can even work its way into, into a believer's mind. This is, this is my, my thing. I can do what I want with my body. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses believers who, who incorrectly deduce that freedom from the penalty of sin meant freedom to do whatever they wanted with their bodies. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, he begins that section, it seems, by quoting a justification that they were using for their behavior. They were saying things like, all things are lawful for me. Not under the law of Moses anymore. All things are lawful for me. And and Paul seeks in this little section to radically reorient them by by saying, look, your your body isn't even your body. You you can't do with it whatever you want. And it, it seems that in this section he's specifically addressing sexual issues but given analogies that he uses, we, we, we should apply that to other things. He, he uses how we feed ourselves as an analogy. So, so we might say, your, your body is not yours to abuse by overfeeding it or underfeeding it. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a steward of this thing that has been entrusted to you for its use as an implement of worship. His body, His choice, not yours. It is holy. It is set apart unto Him. Second, a second component of our personhood. Our culture treats the individual's mind 
as one's own personal playground. Well, not so for the New Testament believer priest. Even our thoughts, our our ability to think, our capacity to believe things does not belong to us. Our, our, Our ability to ponder, our ability to meditate, not our own. We've had occasion in recent weeks to return repeatedly to those opening verses of Romans 12. Verse 1 of Romans 12 reads this way again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your personal worship. And so there again, we've got another verse indicating to us our bodies aren't ours. We offer them to God as living sacrifices. They exist for His worship. But here's the very next verse, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is a command toward a Scripture-molded worldview. He's telling us what to do with our mind, with our capacity to think and to believe. We're not not free to do whatever we want with our brains, are we? Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8 reads this way, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And he goes so far as to tell us exactly what to think about. Think about these things. And by implication, don't think about other things. He's telling us what to think. There are... There's, there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews 5.14 to be specific, where, where the author of Hebrews is teaching, in fact, an entire caveat of, of, of Hebrews or, or he, a rabbit that he chases in chapter 6 is based upon the idea that the normal course for a believer is to move from immaturity to maturity via the intentional training of our mental faculties to distinguish good from evil. And when we don't do that, it causes all kinds of problems. That's just what what believers are supposed to normally do. Train our faculties for God's usage. In other words, to, 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 to say it a simpler way, our minds are not our own. In each of those contexts that I mentioned, we're told based upon who we are in Christ, what to do with our minds, even what to think. My mind is not my own p- private playground. It, it too, just like my body, my mind is holy in the sense that it is set apart for thoughts, for beliefs that serve the worship of the Christ who bought it. We, we talk a lot about the freedom of speech in our country. Very thankful for the freedom of speech. We're enjoying it right now. Amen. We're enjoying it right this second, the freedom of speech. Sometimes, though, we, we, we conceive of it as the freedom to say whatever we want. I can say whatever I want. Not the New Testament believer priest. The New Testament believer priest cannot say whatever he or she wants. Ephesians 4.29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
Now th- think about what that command says about our freedom in Christ. We are free, free to say anything within a box. We're free to say anything that is edifying. And listen, Ephesians 4.29 is not alone. There's, there's plenty in the New Testament telling us what to say, what not to say. All indicating again, our speech is not our own. Our speech is not our own. Every part of us, every part of us, our capacity to communicate, our capacity to think, our capacity to do, our, our, our hands, our bodies, everything, all of it belongs to the one who created us and who through the blood of Christ and the ordination of the Holy Spirit, His Spirit dwelling inside of us, He has consecrated us. He has set us apart for holy use for His service. We are not our own. We belong to Him. And so we, we've, got, we've got two things to rejoice in this morning. First of all, though we, were, we, we have spent perhaps years of our lives, perhaps most of our lives, right there alongside Aaron in Exodus 32, manufacturing idols, saying with our hands, our minds, our lips, I want to do things my way. I don't want to do things God's way. I want to worship false gods. Though we have been doing that through the blood of Christ, we are symbolically Leviticus 8 priests. And every part of us are sanctified by the blood of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit for His holy use. That is a fantastic picture of grace. We should rejoice in that. Secondly, we should rejoice that everything that we are is dedicated to His service and we should take seriously that consecration. We should repent of any use of these faculties that belong to Him, any use of it that we have brought into our own our own selfish usage. You know what? Not so consequently, what do we find when, when we read the wisdom literature? If we read, read Proverbs, I, I would challenge you to do this. Read Proverbs and see what it says about those who do their own thing with their bodies. Do their own thing with their minds. Do their own thing with their speech. Do the authors of Proverbs say that that leads to freedom and happiness? No. Leads to bondage and misery. So the authors of Proverbs, even even there in the Old Testament, are pointing forward to the priesthood brought by Christ and indicating to us there is only freedom and happiness in service to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So we were idolaters, idol manufacturers. Now we're priests, redeemed, consecrated, and therefore owned. And the security of our redemption in Christ should move us to love holiness, the holiness into which He has called us. And we should pursue with zeal personal holiness with a deep conviction that we are set apart for His service. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And after that, we'll, we'll enjoy a, a few moments of, of silent reflection. And I would encourage you before the Lord to both rejoice in your blood-bought priesthood and to consider before the Lord What faculties, what blood-bought faculties of yours need to be brought completely under the Lordship of Christ? Let's pray.
Father, we, we praise you that these things are true. We, we thank you, Father, that, that your word is so clear and that it's so consistent that we find from the beginning to the end one story, one story of redemption in your Son. Toward the beginning, shadows pointing toward him. At the end, we find the fulfillment through him. And we thank you, Lord, that it is, that it is so clearly written for for your glory and for our benefit. We praise you for this. And we ask, Lord, that as, as we ponder these things in the next few minutes, that you, would, that you would lead us to rejoice in the truth and that you would lead us to complete surrender of, of our faculties to the holy work of this New Testament priesthood. That we would believe, Father, that, that our minds are our bodies, our speech, they are holy. They are set apart for your work and that they do not belong to us but to you. And so, Father, let us with joy dedicate them to that service. We pray for your help in these things. And we do so in Jesus' name.